Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Last night, I watched President Biden give the obligatory State of the Union address. And I've watched a lot of these addresses over my lifetime. And this one certainly is one of the worst. It's even possibly the worst, although it's hard to say for sure, because I don't really recall that specifically all of the other lousy State of the Union addresses that I've watched over the years. Now, whether or not it was a failure politically, that I'm not really sure, because the main goal of the State of the Union address, as far as Biden is concerned, is to help him in the polls or to help Democrats in the next election. Biden may be using this State of the Union address as some kind of a springboard to officially announce that he will be seeking a second term of office. He's already the oldest president we've ever had, and he will break that record to the extent that he runs again and wins. So I'll leave the political efficacy of this speech to the political pundits. I just want to talk about what he said from a position of economics, from a position of facts, and from a position of the philosophy of government that President Biden is espousing. Because from those perspectives, this was a horrible State of the Union address. As an American, I couldn't stand listening to it. And the only reason I did listen to it was so that I could do this podcast and give everybody my take. First of all, right out of the bat, almost the first words of his actual speech were wrong because he began the speech by bragging about the fact that America is always moving forward. And it's not. In fact, for the last 100 years, America has been moving steadily backward. I think the real move backwards started in earnest in 1913. That was the year that we passed both the Federal Reserve Act and ratified the 16th Amendment, which gave us the income tax. Now, we started taking some steps backward prior to 1913, But that, I think, was the real turning point for the nation. And we've been going backwards ever since. If you think about where we were back then and where we are now, and you want to decide whether we've made progress and gone forward or have gone backwards, 
We are substantially less free as a people today than we were over 100 years ago. I think freedom, individual liberty, is how you want to measure a society. If a society is more free, then it's gone forward. And if it's less free, then it's gone backwards. And we have gone backwards to an incredible degree. There are all sorts of laws that are on the books today that did not exist 100 years ago. And all of those laws make us less free. You have the government either forcing us to do something that we may not want to do or prohibiting us from doing something that we may want to do. That's what laws do. Laws limit your freedom. And there's all sorts of laws that are on the books now that if the Constitution was actually enforced, wouldn't be on the books. They would have been struck down by the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court doesn't enforce the Constitution anymore. It lets the government get away with whatever it wants. And so we don't have anywhere near the freedom that our ancestors once had. And every time the Biden administration signs a new bill into law, we become even less free than we were before. So until we start repealing all these rules and regulations and shrinking government, we're not going to be moving forward. We're going to be continuing our journey backwards. Then Biden went on to repeat his signature line about building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Now, I guess that sounds good because he wants to contrast that to trickle down where the Republicans supposedly want to build the economy from the top down. But the point I want to make is no president is there to build an economy. The economy builds itself. What governments end up doing is tearing down the economy. What Biden needs to do if he really wants a strong economy is to get the government out of the way so that the private sector can build it. All of the rules and the regulations that Biden wants to pass are not going to help build the economy. They're going to help tear the economy down. And he wants to pretend that the way you get a strong economy is by the government coming in and just giving money to the middle class or to the poor, and they're going to spend this money, and somehow they're going to spend us into prosperity. That's not the way it works. The so-called trickle-down economy is actually more accurate. I just don't like the description of it being trickle-down, but the real way an economy grows is through savings and capital investment. That's what increases labor productivity. What grows an economy are entrepreneurs that can combine the factors of production in such a way to make them more productive. They produce the products, provide the services, create the jobs that make everybody's lives better. The middle class didn't create the prosperity that it enjoys. The prosperity that the middle class enjoyed once, and they still enjoy some remnants of it today, was created by capitalism. It was created by the entrepreneurs, by the inventors, by the businessmen. It wasn't invented by the laborers. The laborers benefited from the capital provided to them by their employers, and they also benefited by consuming the goods that that capital helped produce. The reason American workers became so prosperous, the reason we had a middle class in America was not because we had people working. There were people working all around the world. They didn't enjoy anywhere near the standard of living of the people who were working in America. And the reason American workers were so much wealthier than workers everywhere else was because of the capitalist system 
that they were able to benefit from, but it wasn't just their own labor that was the driving force. It was the entrepreneurs who hired them, who created the jobs, who took the risks, who made the investments, who conceived the inventions. All of this happened because of capitalism and the prosperity that resulted did in fact flow from the top down. It didn't flow from the bottom up or the middle out. The only thing that you're going to achieve by trying to hand money to the middle class and the poor so that they can spend it is inflation. Of course, Biden spent a lot of time bragging about his so-called accomplishments. One of them was the lowest unemployment rate, I don't know, in 50 years or whatever it was. But the main reason the unemployment rate is so low compared to what it had been 50 years ago is because we don't measure unemployment properly today the way we did back then. There are a lot of people who are, in fact, unemployed who are not counted. And so it's only because we changed the methodology for keeping track that the number is so low. The other thing that Biden bragged about was the creation of jobs and how many new jobs have been created since he's been president. In particular, he focused on manufacturing jobs. And he said that we've had the fastest growth in manufacturing jobs in 40 years or something like that. But again, all of this is disingenuous at best because all these manufacturing jobs that Biden wants to claim credit for having created existed before he became president. It's just that the manufacturing companies who employed those people temporarily laid them off because of the COVID shutdown. Now Biden becomes president and these workers who were temporarily laid off are called back to the jobs that they already had. Joe Biden didn't create those jobs. They were there. He's just taking credit for workers going back to jobs that they had before he was president. And as I've been talking about on my podcast, most of the jobs that President Biden is taking credit for having created are part-time jobs. They are low-paying jobs. They are part-time jobs for people who already had full-time jobs, but now Thanks to inflation and the decline of real wages, those full-time jobs are no longer adequate to make ends meet, so they've had to go out and take a second or a third job. Now, that is not an accomplishment. That represents a failure. The fact that Americans can no longer get by on one job and they're forced to moonlight and take on second and third jobs is not something that Biden should be claiming credit for. It's something that he should be embarrassed about, and he should be doing something to address the economic failures of his administration, not falsely take credit for a success that doesn't exist. Then he also bragged about all the small businesses that are apparently starting up under his presidency. I think since he's became president, something like 10 and a half million applications for new businesses have been filed. And this is apparently the most in any two-year period in history. Now, first of all, just because somebody files to start a new business doesn't mean they actually started one. But I also think that this is a very deceptive figure because I think the vast majority of these so-called new businesses are not really new businesses. These were people who were unemployed or who used to work in an office and started working from home, but as an independent contractor. In fact, the gig economy where a lot of people are now working for themselves as independent contractors, it makes a lot of tax sense for these individuals to go set up companies 
that they can work for because then they can have the money that they earn flow through their company and they can take advantage of a lot of deductions that would not otherwise be available to them. So these so-called small businesses are not businesses in any sense of the word. They're not going to hire anybody. They are workers who are masquerading as businesses in order to better operate in the gig economy. These are people who used to be employees of other companies, and now instead of working for wages, they work as independent contractors through their own businesses that they've set up. And so what Biden is doing is taking credit for that and pretending that somebody who is self-employed and who is operating a business that doesn't actually employ anybody other than the person who set it up and maybe simply collects income as a result of the labor of the only employee that that company has, that's not a new business. And in fact, I think one of the reasons that we have so few unemployment claims now is because so many Americans are working for themselves as independent contractors. And when you work for yourself, you can't fire yourself. If an independent contractor loses a contract, they're not fired. They can't go out and claim unemployment benefits. He also bragged about how much inflation has come down without, of course, accepting any responsibility for how much it went up before it came down. And of course, as I've been saying on this podcast, the current decline in the rate of inflation is transitory. And by the end of the year, we're going to start to see sequentially higher, not lower inflation numbers. In addition to bragging about inflation coming down, he also bragged about the trade deficits coming down and this boom in manufacturing, how Americans were finally manufacturing again and exporting again. And all of this is made up. He basically borrowed this page from Donald Trump. There is no huge resurgence in U.S. manufacturing. We have had the biggest trade deficits in history on Biden's watch. Any growth that we've seen in manufacturing jobs was simply a function of the manufacturing workers who were temporarily laid off before COVID going back to work after COVID. That's it. Everything else is just a figment of the president's imagination. He bragged a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, does nothing to reduce inflation, is an act specifically to increase inflation because it involves spending money that the government doesn't have and that will ultimately result in more inflation because the Federal Reserve will have to print money to buy up the bonds that were sold to finance the deficits that the Inflation Reduction Act created. Or if the private sector finances those deficits, then that money is not available to fund private investment. So either way, it's going to reduce supply or increase demand, and we're going to get higher prices. In fact, the president bragged about his infrastructure bill and how much money we're going to spend on infrastructure. He was upset that America ranks 13th in the world for infrastructure, and somehow spending all this borrowed money is going to make us more prosperous. It's not. We would be far more prosperous if we allowed the private sector to make these investments because then they actually might be worthwhile. They actually might be viable because they would be driven by a profit motive. The government doesn't give a damn. In fact, one of the things that Biden said that he was going to do is make sure we buy American. He talked about buy America and laws requiring companies to buy American. You never want to force a company to buy an American product 
if they choose to buy the American product because it's the best, because it's the most competitive, that's great. But if they can buy a product at a lower price or a higher quality from abroad, you hurt the U.S. economy by forcing those companies to overpay for American products. Ultimately, when you do that, you make American industry less globally competitive because now they're at a disadvantage because their competitors can source their components from whoever produces the lowest cost or the highest quality. But if American companies are forced to overpay for lower quality domestically produced goods, then their final product is not globally competitive. All of these laws that force people to buy American ultimately backfire and they hurt the American worker. The idea is to help American workers, but the reality is that American workers end up getting hurt. And of course, to the extent that American workers are also consumers and they end up buying stuff that's more expensive because the companies that made the stuff were forced to buy overpriced American products when lower priced foreign alternatives were available, then they get hurt as consumers. But ultimately, they get hurt as workers too because all sorts of industries become less productive as a result of these requirements. You know, once upon a time, we didn't need any laws to force people to buy American products. Everybody bought American products. So we had the best products. We made the highest quality products at the lowest prices, and we did it paying the highest wages. Why did that happen? Because we were much freer back then. We had less government and more economic freedom. And so you didn't have to force people to buy American. They bought American because American products were the best. In fact, people all around the world were buying American products over their own products for the same reason. But now, because of all these years of government regulation and spending and taxation, American industry is now so uncompetitive that we have to force people to do things that they once did voluntarily. Of course, Biden also spoke about raising taxes on the rich, taxing the billionaires, taxing the corporations quadrupling the tax on buybacks, cracking down on wealthy tax cheats. None of this is going to make America more competitive. First of all, it's not the wealthy tax cheats that they really want to go after. It's the middle class. It's those gig workers who aren't reporting all their income. But to the extent that we send a bunch of IRS agents out there, they're going to be harassing a lot of small business owners. They're going to be making the U.S. economy less productive. We need to get rid of the income tax not find ways to squeeze more money out of the people who are already paying it. It is a very inefficient, unconstitutional tax. We waste so much money complying with the tax, of legally avoiding the tax. We can get rid of an army of unproductive workers if we just went to the fair tax or something like that. But Biden would never consider that type of subsidized change to the tax code. He would rather pretend that Americans can get something for nothing and we can do it by taxing the rich. In the meantime, all of Biden's deficits are being funded on the backs of the middle class and the working poor through the inflation tax. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. 
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. While I'm on the subject of inflation, the main thing driving inflation are the deficits. And once again, President Biden bragged about cutting the deficit. He claimed that he cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion. Now, maybe that may technically be true using government numbers if you count the high point of the budget deficit in 2021 when we had the COVID bailouts, the PPP and all that. Yes, maybe that's true, but that's an aberration. You can't compare the budget you have now to that massive increase in deficit spending that we had during COVID. In fact, if you just look at Biden's current budget deficits post-COVID and compare them to Trump's last deficit pre-COVID, Biden's deficits are much bigger. Everything Biden has done has added to the structural deficits of the United States. He has not cut the deficit at all. Claiming that he's done so is a lie. And in fact, one of the things that Biden did was call out Donald Trump for his big deficits. Now, that's true. I called out Trump myself, but Biden is a hypocrite. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. He said that Donald Trump was so bad that under his presidency, he added 25% to the national debt. He said that one quarter of the entire debt that happened over 200 plus years of U.S. history took place under the term of one man. And this was supposedly really, really bad because we ran up such a big debt under President Trump. Well, what Biden didn't mention is that under President Obama, and he was the vice president for Obama for eight years, during those eight years, the national debt almost doubled. That means in eight years, Obama-Biden added as much to the national debt as all the presidents from George Washington to George W. Bush. It took those 43 presidents nearly 220 years to run up that much debt. And then Obama-Biden did the same thing in just eight years. And so while it's true that Donald Trump added 25% to the national debt in just one term, Obama-Biden added 50% to the national debt in just two terms. Pretty much about the same mathematics. So everything that Biden was criticizing Trump for doing, he did himself when he was working with Obama. And of course, if you X out the year of COVID, the Biden deficits are already on track to be bigger than the Trump deficits. Now, of course, I was critical of the Trump deficits when Trump was president and when those deficits were there. A lot of Republicans were making excuses for those deficits, voting to support those deficits. I was against them not only on principle, but because I knew that the Democrats would throw these deficits right back into the Republicans' faces, and that's exactly what they're doing. Because now Biden is correctly pointing out that Republicans had no problem with the Trump deficits. They had no problem raising the debt ceiling three times to accommodate these deficits, and they are hypocrites for refusing to raise a debt ceiling now and demanding that there are some spending cuts when they made no such demands on President Trump. And about that, Biden is right. But he is not the appropriate person to call out Trump because he's doing the same thing. But Republicans are responsible for allowing Biden to get away with this 
because they themselves look like hypocrites when they oppose Biden, when they didn't also oppose Trump for doing the same thing. Now, I'm not saying that the Republicans who supported Trump deficits should now support Biden deficits. They shouldn't, nor should they support an increase in the debt ceiling, even though they supported an increase when Trump was president, because two wrongs don't make a right. Just because Republicans did the wrong thing when Trump was president doesn't mean they should do the wrong thing again when Biden is president. It's just that if they had done the right thing back then, we would be in much better shape right now, and they wouldn't look like such hypocrites doing it now. But you know what? The Republicans have to just come clean and apologize for supporting Trump when he did exactly what they don't want Biden to do now. They have to come clean and confess that they made a mistake, they regret that mistake, and they're not going to repeat it now. That they finally found religion. It just took a Democrat to be president for them to find that religion, but at least they finally found God, and it's better late than never. The president also threw out plenty of red meat to his base. He talked a lot about climate change. He said he wants to give every teacher a raise. Of course, that always gets applause from the teachers, and it sounds great. Yes, we want the teachers to earn more money. Of course, where's the money going to come from? Certainly not out of Biden's pocket. He then vowed not to let the Republicans cut Social Security. Of course, the Republicans aren't trying to cut Social Security. That's part of the problem. We need to cut Social Security. All entitlements need to be cut, but nobody has the guts to propose any cuts. But of course, Biden wants to pretend that he's the only one standing between senior citizens and abject poverty because those mean Republicans want to take away their Social Security. You always win brownie points when you promise not to let anybody cut Social Security. But of course, as he's promising not to cut Social Security, that's precisely what he is doing with inflation. Inflation is eroding away the value of Social Security benefits without anybody having to vote to cut them. Sure, the colas are there. People on Social Security are getting an increase in their benefits, but those benefits are lagging the real increase in the cost of living. So if Biden really cared about protecting Social Security, he'd be cutting government spending right now. He would be shrinking the deficits so there would be less inflation to erode away the value of those benefits. And in fact, there is now so much debt that paying those Social Security benefits is impossible. And since politicians don't have the guts to officially cut them, they will destroy the value of Social Security benefits through inflation. In the words of former U.S. Senator William Praxmire, whom my father quoted in his book, The Biggest Con, Social Security benefits may be worthless when the government pays them, but they will pay them nonetheless. And what he meant by that is that the government will end up paying Social Security benefits with worthless money but they will still pay them because no politician will ever vote to cut them. Biden also talked about his antitrust bill and how we have to bust up these big monopolies. He said capitalism without competition amounts to extortion. Of course, this is all a bunch of nonsense. We don't need any of this antitrust. We don't have monopolies. We don't have private companies extorting the public. It's the government that extorts the public. Private companies have to win your business fair and square. They have to convince you to voluntarily patronize their businesses. You have plenty of alternatives when it comes to spending your money. But when it comes to paying taxes, there are no alternatives. 
You can't just choose not to pay taxes. If you don't pay, they put you in jail. Government is force. So only government can exploit the people, not private businesses who have to win the people over by giving them higher quality at a lower price. But of all the completely ridiculous things the president discussed during his speech, the most ridiculous was when he talked about his junk fee prevention act. I'm not making this up. If you didn't listen to the State of the Union, you got to listen to this part. I didn't even know that there was such a bill, the Junk Fee Prevention Act. What are these junk fees that we need government protection from? Well, Biden talked about it. They're the fees that airlines charge to change your reservation or cancel a flight or banks that charge you a fee for an insufficient funds or an overdrawn account. Hotels charge resort fees. Internet providers might charge you a fee if you terminate a contract prematurely. Same thing with cable companies. So according to Biden, these fees are plaguing Americans and the government needs to put a stop to it. The government needs to make sure that hotels don't charge resort fees. Are you serious? First of all, it is absolutely none of the government's business how hotels want to charge for their services. If they want to charge a resort fee, that's up to the hotel. If the consumer doesn't want to pay the resort fee, well, then he could choose a different hotel. The fact that so many hotels have resort fees and consumers have no problem paying them means that it's working. It's completely unconstitutional for the government to come in and try to micromanage a hotel and dictate to the hotel owners how they can charge for their services. But based on the way the courts have already misinterpreted the Commerce Clause, I'm sure they'd get away with it because they could pretty much do anything they want with how broad this clause now is. They could just say hotels are engaged in interstate commerce. They have customers that travel from other states. They buy products that are coming to the hotel on interstate highways, or they buy products that were manufactured in other states. All of this nonsense, which has been used in the past to justify an unconstitutional usurpation of power on the part of the federal government. So forget about the fact that this is unconstitutional. It is going to backfire because let's say the government is successful and this bill actually passes. I don't think there's any way it's getting out of the House of Representatives, but let's say this so-called Junk Fee Prevention Act actually passed. And among other things, it was illegal for a hotel to charge a resort fee. What would happen? Well, they would just incorporate the resort fee into their room rate and the price would go up. In fact, if you took away the discretion that all these companies have, airlines, banks, hotels, internet service providers, cable TV providers, if you took away the ability to impose these so-called junk fees, I'm sure the total cost of their services would go up because there is a reason for certain fees. Why do banks charge fees to people when they bounce checks or when they overdraw their account? Because they want to discourage them from doing that because there's a cost to the bank to having to deal with it. So instead of charging everybody, you simply charge the people who are bouncing the checks. But if they can't do that, if they have to charge everybody, well, then you have a moral hazard. More people end up bouncing the checks because they're not punished for it. 
And so now everybody has to end up paying more to have a checking account. And so in total, people end up paying more for checking accounts after we get rid of the junk fees than before, because these junk fees may seem like junk to President Biden, but they actually have a purpose. And it's in a free market where these fees have evolved. And if it's a free market that's produced them, then there's nothing wrong with it because no hotel has a monopoly, right? I mean, how could anybody claim that hotels are imposing resort fees because they're monopolies? They're not. There's so many hotels and motels out there. This is just the best practice for the industry. It is working. And in banking, what might actually happen if the president succeeds in preventing banks from charging customers when they bounce checks or overdraw their account, what they may end up doing is raising their minimum so high that a lot of people get priced out of the banking market because some of the people who have a tendency to overdraw their bank accounts, if the banks are not able to assess a fee when they do that, they'll just make sure not to accept their business in the first place. And so now people who have bank accounts and they just have to pay high fees if they bounce a check won't have any bank accounts at all. And then they're going to be paying even higher fees trying to work without bank accounts, working with these check cashing companies who are going to take a huge percentage off the value of their paychecks in order to give them cash. Whenever the government tries to solve a problem, it makes any problem that they're trying to solve worse. And this is particularly egregious when the problem they're trying to solve is also created by government. Government regulations create one problem, and then government comes up with another regulation meant to solve that problem, and it ends up making it worse. But I think one of the most aggravating aspects of the president's pitch for the Junk Fee Prevention Act was how he accused businesses of deceptively advertising that, oh, these resort fees, they don't appear in the advertisement. So people are suckered, and then they show up at a hotel, and they're shocked when they see these resort fees. Talk about people living in glass white houses shouldn't be throwing stones. It's the government that's guilty of false advertising. Case in point, the Inflation Reduction Act, which effectively increases inflation. The government mislabels everything it does. Everything the government does is a fraud. All of their legislation, all their bills are fraudulent. They name their bills the exact opposite of the effect of their bills. The Tax Simplification Act ends up complicating taxes. The Patriot Act is the most unpatriotic piece of legislation ever passed. So if we need to have truth in advertising, where we really need it is in the U.S. Congress. We need a truth in legislating act. But of course, if Congress had to truthfully label all of their bills, none of them would be passed into law because nobody would vote for them. Biden actually claimed that if Congress passed his Junk Fee Reduction Act, that it could save Americans hundreds of dollars a year. Big deal. How about the thousands of dollars a year that they're paying in taxes? What Biden should be focused on is not trying to save people the resort fee on the rare occasion that they happen to go to a hotel. How about the hundreds or thousands of dollars that are taken from their paychecks why doesn't Biden actually focus his attention where they can make a difference? Not only would cutting government spending be the constitutional thing to do and the correct economic thing to do, but it would save households meaningful sums of money. 
thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars a year, not just hundreds of dollars, can be saved if we reduce the size of government. But everything Biden talked about during his entire one hour plus State of the Union address was how to make the government bigger, how the government could spend more money. And all of that is going to erode away the value of everybody's savings and everybody's wages. And so while the president is promising to give everybody pennies, he's stealing their dollars. Now, following the president's State of the Union address, you had the Republican response delivered by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the current governor of Arkansas. I liked her response in general. I agreed with most of it and thought she did a good job. The one part that I disagree with is her characterization of the economy under Donald Trump. And of course, she was in the Trump administration and she is a Republican and they feel an obligation to talk about how great everything was under Trump. But she highly exaggerated the strength of the economy when Trump left office to try to make the argument that Biden inherited this wonderful economy that he proceeded to destroy. But the truth is Donald Trump didn't turn over a strong economy to Biden. He turned over the same bubble economy that he inherited from Obama. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about the other important person who spoke earlier in the day at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C., and he also took Q&A. And I want to talk a little bit about the questions and the answers. First of all, one of the questions that was asked was wrongheaded. And this shows you the lack of understanding of basic economics among people who are professed to be experts in the subjects. So one of the questions that Powell was asked was that given the strong jobs numbers that we just got the other day, was he concerned that his efforts to fight inflation by increasing unemployment were not working because he wasn't getting the increase in unemployment that he was hoping for based on the increase of interest rates. Now, the question in and of itself reveals a complete lack of understanding of inflation or of why raising interest rates are supposed to fight inflation. Because the reality is you don't raise interest rates to create unemployment. That doesn't fight inflation because inflation is not caused by people working. In fact, people working productively helps mitigate the effects of inflation. Because if the government is printing money, but you have more people working productively to increase the supply of goods and services, that keeps a lid on prices. So you don't want to throw people out of work when you're fighting inflation. You want as many people working as possible. What you want to deter when you raise interest rates is consumption. So you want people working. You just don't want them spending all of their paychecks. You want them taking a larger fraction of their paychecks and saving it. So that is the goal of higher interest rates. You're helping to bring down inflation by bringing down spending and bringing up savings. Because then you kill two birds with one stone. You reduce demand, but by increasing savings, you increase supply because now you have more money to be loaned out to businesses to make the capital investment necessary to produce more goods. So that is the goal of higher interest rates. It's not to create unemployment. That is a Keynesian fantasy, which is still widely accepted today. 
And the only reason people think that you fight inflation by creating unemployment is because they still believe in the nonsense of the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve says that as unemployment goes up, inflation goes down and vice versa. The whole curve is nonsense. So it was a foolish question and it never should have been asked. But of course, Powell's a fool for answering it because it's the blind leading the blind. The guy asking the questions doesn't know anything about economics, and neither does the guy answering them. Which brings me to the answers. I want to focus on two answers that Powell gave to the questions. Why did the Fed decide that inflation needs to be 2% and not 3%, for example? Now, Powell's answer was that it is the global standard, and that's why. Well, that's a BS answer. First of all, when did it become the global standard? Who made it the global standard? And why is the global standard 2% and not 1%, for example? And when did Fed policy become beholden to some kind of global standard? Because I never thought that the Fed took its marching orders from the globe, that it has to bend its policy to meet some kind of global standard. It's all a bunch of nonsense. I've talked about it on this podcast. The real way that the 2% number came about it was in New Zealand. It was Don Brash who was in charge of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand under Roger Douglas when they had reformed their economy and moved away from socialism. They had high inflation and they imposed the first inflation ceiling of 2%. It wasn't a target. It was a ceiling. And what the Reserve Bank of New Zealand had to do was make sure inflation stayed below 2%. It didn't mean that if inflation was 1%, they needed to work to get it to go up to 2%. It meant if it was 1%, it was okay because it was below the ceiling. If it was a half a percent, that was even better because it was further below the ceiling. But if it ever got to 2%, that meant that the Reserve Bank had to tighten policy because their goal was to make sure that inflation stayed below 2%. Now, somehow that eventually morphed in to a 2% target which is now the global standard that Powell somehow feels beholden to comply with. But of course, there is no reason why 2% is the number. It was a ceiling. It was never a target. And if you're going to have a target for inflation, how about zero? How about negative one? Falling prices are better than stable prices, and prices going up by 1% are better than prices going up by 2%. After all, Powell reiterated the Fed's commitment to price stability. Well, when did prices going up by 2% a year, every year, become stable? Stability means unchanged. If prices go up 2% a year, they're anything but stable. But the most ridiculous answer that Powell gave was in response to a question as to whether or not he was worried about the absolute size of the national debt, not just the battle over raising the debt ceiling, but whether or not the size of the debt was a concern for him and his inflation fight. And his answer was no. He said that when it comes to inflation, the level of the national debt is not the problem. Of course, it's the problem. It's precisely the problem. It's the national debt that is the driving force behind inflation. It's because the government is running such large deficits that the Federal Reserve has been monetizing them through quantitative easing. So the larger the deficits, the more money has to be printed, the more inflation we have. And in fact, the larger the national debt becomes, 
the more unpayable it becomes and the more likely it is that we end up repudiating the debt with inflation. So not only does the size of the debt drive how much inflation we have now, but because it's now so enormous, it's driving how much more inflation we're likely to have in the future. If Powell doesn't understand that the debt is the problem and that the more debt we have, the more inflation we have, then he is completely clueless about inflation. Based on his answer, Powell is either a complete fool and doesn't know anything about economics or inflation, or he's lying. And I'm not sure which is worse. Personally, I'd rather have a liar as Fed chairman than a fool, because at least the liar knows what he's doing is wrong and can one day tell the truth and start doing the right thing. But if you're just a complete fool and have absolutely no idea what the right thing is, then you're never going to do it.